Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hi, this is Michael Waits from Asia Tech Podcast Stories. I am talking to Sarasit Sachdev. Did I get that right? Yep. The CEO and the founder of Hungry Hub. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I am doing super. So why don't you talk to me a little bit about how long you've kind of been in the startup scene and maybe what led you to it initially, actually. You want me to go back to my history from day one or go straight to the startup? Yeah, I mean, day one would mean on the day of your birth. It's probably a slightly longer story than I would expect. But if you can, yeah, yeah. All right. Maybe like what you studied so, in school, like why? Why do you care about technology? Why did you feel like this was the right thing to build? And then you reiterated a little bit from when you started, yeah. right? So let's just talk about that whole process, if, if that's okay. Okay, sure. So basically, I'm a Thai Sikh. Let me just... Uh, uh, been living in Thailand throughout my life, most of my life, but been living abroad. So it started off when I did my undergrad. I did bachelors of commerce in Australia okay. with the majors in information system. Got it. Uh, so that got me into the technology aspect. And I have, since young, I've always been interested in technology. I started a tech blog about gadgets back in like 2006. Uh, so when like basically talking about when the new iPhone was launched, uh, making money through Google Ads. So that was my first days with technology when I was like 17. Uh, so so that's kind of how it all started. Then I came into, after I, did my, after I graduated in 2008, uh, my undergrad, I went to work in a bank, international bank in Thailand. Which bank was that? Uh, it was Standard Chartered Bank. Got it, okay. And what were you doing, what were you doing there? Was it tech-related? So I was doing like basically it was operation support. So I was basically automating a lot of the things that they do on a manual day-to-day work in the operations team. So let's say you apply for a credit card. They have to go through some manual process internally. So I wanna, I was basically in charge of automating a lot of the stuff so that the staff can take on more work without hiring more people. Right. So, so I was doing that for a year in, in Bangkok. And then I moved to Singapore at, within Stanchart as well for two years and I was doing more like bigger projects implementation across 10 10 plus countries uh, basically automation as well were you writing were you writing code or were you doing project management when I was in Bangkok I was doing a little bit of like macros and stuff so not so much on the coding side but more on the uh, implementation and using different ideas or like codes from existing place and then come and using best practice kind of thing so I when I moved to Singapore, I stopped all that uh, macros and stuff. So I was doing more like on the business side. So I was uh, first I started as an analyst doing like MIS reports for CEOs and all in the bank and then moved into uh, doing a big project for the bank. I was in, working in the consumer bank. So doing a project that is in charge of scanning documents from branch to operations to save time instead of couriering the documents. So it was more like a workflow management system. Got it. And did you find that interesting? Like, what was the what was some of the main things that you learned doing that? So I was dealing with a lot of like management and ground level. I understood the whole requirement. Worked with the tech team. I think a lot of a lot of things I learned was dealing with the the tech team, understanding how long how the requirements should be. So more about the communication between the the business and the tech, which was what I studied in information system, kind of right. becoming a project manager. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of the skills that I got 
use and what I am using today in my startup most because I'm not necessarily a coder. I can understand a little bit about database and stuff like that, but not so much going deep dive into program. Got it. So you were, how long did you end up living in Singapore? I was living there for two years. And are you, so I are you back, back? You're back in Thailand now, right? Yeah, yeah. I moved back to Thailand in 2012, and then I did my MBA at Sasin. Ah, okay. Good stuff. Yeah, so I did my MBA at Sasin for two years, or for a year and a half, then I did my exchange at Wharton. And actually at Sasin, I got introduced into the startup world. Actually, when I quit Stanchart, I was deciding whether or not to start a business myself. Uh, moving back to Thailand because Singapore to start a business, not living there, the cost of rent, the manpower and everything was insane for, especially when you don't have that much savings. So yeah. I was like, I can't live abroad and do a startup without funding. And that, at that time, 2011, there was no, no talk about funding at that point. So I said, let me go back to Thailand and start something. But that was a plan. Your family's here, right? Yeah, yeah, my family's based in Thailand. Right, I mean, they've been here for a long time, right? Um, yeah. So you went to Sasin, and what was the introduction you had there to the startup world? Did you take, like, one of Doug Abrams' classes? Like, what was the thing that really got you going? So basically, during my orientation itself, I got, like, one of the seniors, like, the the guys who were a year ahead of me. Right. They were talking to me about, like, doing business plan competitions. So basically, within Sasin, they take a lot of students uh, to different business plan competitions around the world to compete. So, like, we went to the U.S., to India, uh, basically take an idea, work on it, like, throughout for, like, six months, one year, and then go and compete in business plan competitions. Okay. And we won in, like, Oregon. We were, like, top three in Texas. So it was, like, against, like, Harvard, Stanford, and real business ideas, which the product which I worked on is still being worked on till today. I was going to ask I'm you, so part what, of the team. what was that? It was basically a a prebiotic. It was basically a, a similar to you, you probably know probiotic, which is in yogurts and all, right? Mm-hmm. So, so prebiotic is actually the food for the probiotic. Kind of like a, it's, it's basically good for your digestive system to help you not have so much like all these problems. Uh, and it's extracted from longan fruit, which is a waste in Thailand. Like every year, they throw away longan fruit because it's over. There's oversupply of it, so we're converting like this waste product into a high-value nutritional uh, ingredient, which can be used as functional food kind of thing. Right. I mean, int- so basically a new source of yeah. prebiotic. Yeah. Sorry. One of the interesting things about Thailand is that the fruit production here is so large that you know longan is something that foreigners actually love and yeah. they can't grow at home. And it's just yeah. interesting to me that it ends up being waste in Thailand that you found another use for, which is probably one of the reasons why one. Um, a business plan competition, yeah, you know, because it's so, sustainability and all the other things that come into play, right? Correct, correct. So we were we were basically competing on the idea that we're using a waste into a high value product, which is a no brainer, right? So, yeah. so I mean, we did really well across. We went to like Rice University business plan competition. We went, we were like around five different business plan competitions. We won two. Uh, we were yeah. like runner up for like two, and then like so. It was. It basically got me introduced into the whole startup ecosystem. Not mainly the tech side, right. more on hard science side, but also understanding the whole concept of starting from zero to like getting the supply in order, getting like projection team registration, 
all the basic stuff of starting a company and going to talk to a VC as well, like valuation and all that kind of thing. So what was it about starting from zero that was so appealing to you that made you not want to kind of go back at a more senior position at Standard Chartered or, you know, try to get a job at an MNC in Thailand? Like, what was it about just starting from nothing that was so appealing? So for me, when I was working in Standard Chartered Bank, every year, I was there for three years. Every year I had uh, basically promotion. And before I left, I got like five job opportunities internally <laughs> I'm sure. to, to, to grow within. But I'm like, this is, the more you grow, the higher you grow, and it becomes more and more red tape, which for me, I feel like that's not what I want to spend my hours of the day doing. Yeah, it's dealing not, with not so fulfilling. Work. Yeah, so for me, I was like, I'd rather take that time to do something more challenging rather than like just basically doing it for the money. Uh, and I, I enjoyed my fair share of it, I, I must say. <laughs> but moving back to Thailand, for me, I was like, it's a big challenge to start from zero, especially when I, my family and everyone is more established and I have that option of going to work in a family business, which is more established. But uh, it's a challenge for myself. Right, so that, that was... That was going to be the next question, right? So you're sitting there in Standard Chartered. You, you decide you're going to go to Sustin. You do really well, obviously, at school. You probably are, always have, to be fair. Um, you know, you go do these five competitions. You win two, you place in two, and the other one you kind of just do really well. And you, you, know, you come home and you say, you know what, I'm going to quit my job and start from nothing. You don't join the family business, which I'm presuming is, is an option, right? Yep, it is. And what kind of business is your family in, if you don't mind me asking? And my family uh, used to be in the textile, still is very uh, in the small level, but now more in the hospitality. So hotels, Got we it. have a few. We have one in Bangkok and a few in Phuket. Awesome. Um, yeah. yeah. So, it, but it's interesting, right? It's always great to to come from a family where you're running your own business, because at some level there was an entrepreneur at some point, and there's probably an entrepreneurial spirit inside the family that says. Don't, don't don't go work at a big company. If you're going to do that, work here. But if you're not going to do that as well, just go start something on your own, right? Uh, yeah, I, I guess the last part wasn't an option for me, but I kind of pushed it myself. But why? Tell me why. That's actually interesting to me. In other words, you come from an entrepreneurial family. If you come home yeah. and talk to your mom and dad, your uncles and your aunts, and you go, okay, I'm going to go out on my own, which is basically what grandpa did, right, or your grandmother did or something. So it would seem to me that they would be proud of the fact that you just want to go out and do something on your own. But did they just go like, oh, my God, you're insane? Don't do that. Because my, my dad is a businessman, and he's like, you're spending your hours. The opportunity cost is <laughs> X amount, right? You know, like you you have the brains. You have – I send you to MBA. Uh, I mean, my, I'm expecting you to come in and really push the business. Even if it's increased by 10%, it's probably more than your startup doing like 100X or whatever, you know. <laughs> Thanks. So, <laughs> so that that's kind of the mindset. But that was for the first two or three years, and now he's finally kind of like accepting and understanding and seeing the value of the potential. Well, so now he's asking you for a job, right? <laughs> <laughs> he's never gonna do that. You can't say like, yes. Yeah. No, I know you can't say yes because you'll probably still get in trouble at some level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So now let's talk about your business, right? I remember when we met, you know, Hungry Hub was one thing in your mind, and now you're saying it's a different thing. So you want to go through that progression as well? Sure. So we started out of uh, basically four of my co five co-founders are my MBA colleagues. 
uh, my classmates basically. Right. And at, during that time, my plan was actually I had the idea of Hungry Hub before starting Sasin. And I was deciding whether to start it right away or go to Sasin. And the problem which I was facing, I was talking to a lot of uh, tech outsource company to develop because I didn't know anyone in Thailand. I didn't, right. I didn't have a team. So for me, going to Sasin, I had a clear purpose that I want to get my team from there. Whether, whatever business I'm going to start, Hungry Hub is one idea. And then after doing the, the long gun business for a year, one of my team members from the long gun business came and joined me. And I recruited two more uh, within my class to get started with Hungry Hub. So that was the, the start of it. So, what, so, what's, idea, so what was the idea? The idea is the online reservation. So basically open table for Thailand. Got it. Uh, so at that time, there was hardly any in Asia, let alone Thailand. And we were thinking, okay, not only Thailand, do it along some among some for a while and then expand to other countries. Right. So and what year was that? That was to, basically when we started was late 2013. 13, but yeah. we actually launched it in like 2014 because I, I had to go for an exchange for six months at Water. Uh, so I, I wasn't here, so I had to wait for me to come back. And then I was basically the only one who was full-time at that point. Got it. Yeah. So 2014, we kind of like first talked to restaurants and everything, middle of 2014. So what is that like? So you have this idea, right? You look yeah. at you look at the United States, you say open table. And open table has actually been around for a long time. And even they, based on some stuff that I've been reading recently, they've iterated their business quite a bit from yeah. when they first started. But you look at that model and you say, okay, it doesn't exist in Thailand to begin with. But there was probably some inkling of that business in Singapore already, right? I forget the name yeah. of it. But there was something like it already, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So... When you first went around and started talking to restaurants, because the idea is just that none of these restaurants have a reservation system per se, right? They just have some yep. guy answering the phone and writing your name down in a book with a number next to it. Correct. Right. You want to automate that process and you can build some ancillary businesses around it as well, I would think. But that's just the, that's the genesis of the business there, right? Correct. So when you went around to talk to restaurants, what was yep. their reaction? When I in the beginning, the, the the thing is that when we set the pricing model, we said we'll charge you based on how many customers we bring you. So the reservation system is a small peanut amount per month, and then we'll charge you based on how much customers we're going to bring you. And we did research before starting this business, talking to the restaurant. Now the challenge is nobody's going to say no. Every restaurant said yes. Hmm. Come, give me the free system, and then. Once you bring me customers, I'll pay you. Right. It's a no-brainer, right? It's a, it's a commission-based, like Agoda and every other business. So there goes the start. We got very quick, like 60 restaurants within six months. And we got like 150 or 200 by the end of second year. The problem wasn't restaurants. The problem was no customers would make a reservation. And hence, no revenue would be earned. Right. So you're doing all this work, doing all this development, and yeah. even though the restaurants say yes, because this always seemed to me to be the issue, and that was for most restaurants, even the super high-level restaurants, there was never a real problem getting a reservation. You usually, so I would say in Thailand, the number of restaurants that need a reservation is probably no more than 100 to 200 restaurants. Exactly. And those 100 to 200 restaurants out of 200,000 restaurants in Thailand, uh, those 100 to 200 don't want your system right because, because they, they don't need they it want, 
They don't need it. They're already full every day. They don't need uh, uh, that extra thing to come and handle it. Well, and also so, they don't want to be more efficient because at some level they want to create scarcity by making sure. it difficult to get a reservation so people feel like, oh, God, I cannot get into Smith. I've got to go there and like wait in line or something. Correct. That That's right. Okay. So, so so that was kind of the problem that we we took longer to like pivot than we should have, I would say, because we did we did from June 2014 till about uh, June 2016, we were doing the same business, trying we were adding like promotions here, there, trying to get corporates to join, uh, give 10% discount here and there. But the key is that if you can call and make a reservation right. uh, within the first phone call or you walk in and you get a table there's no need for another system correct because call is easy yeah but and that me, was my point, I, yeah. I just thought that I, I just thought that i mean we're bringing them an easier way but the problem is let's i thought about like grab taxi and uber and everything like why does it work because the problem is you can't call and get a taxi there's no call center anymore and even when you try to call on the street they don't they don't they really don't want to go yeah so so there's a bigger problem than convenience. Like convenience comes second. Like first, there must be a real bigger problem. So I didn't think about that. Just thought that I can. I've succeeded in everything in life before. I'll succeed <laughs> in this one kind of thing. I'll you, I'm being honest. No, that's, like, uh, but that's uh, a reality, right? And that's yeah. the, that's that's hubris, right? And that that issue is every other idea I've had has worked, right? And you yeah. know, I got in at school. Yeah, I did well at school. I said that earlier. Yeah. And yeah. I can see a need for this. I'm gonna build it. It's gonna work. Yeah, fair enough. Exactly. So, so yeah, that was until about June 2014, and then uh, in 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 about June, I was like, the next three months, I started thinking of the next idea that I want to do already. Because I was like, Hungry Hub is not gonna work. I'm gonna close it down. Had and there been, was the had, you, had you been funded, or did you just self-fund yourself? Self-funded ourselves. Got it. Okay. So you we, didn't owe anybody anything. It was just like. Yeah. Okay, fair we, enough. We talked to many VCs and they all rejected us and we didn't even think that was a sign. <laughs> <laughs> but what would you think now? I mean, we can go through that later, but now you know that they were probably right. <laughs> I, 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 I think that I'm wrong at that time. So, so I know that I was wrong at that time and, and only, you will only know that in the hindsight, right? But, yeah, for sure. You learned something yeah. and nobody died, right? So Yeah. <laughs> so, so in a way, the only thing I lost was time, time. and but the thing that I gained was experience. So for me, it was like a two-year extra business school kind of thing. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth, right? It's the same for me. So I've invested in a couple of companies and lost all my money in those, right? Yeah. I mean, those are not the only investments that I've made, but those are the ones that I like to talk about because those are the ones where I've really learned something. You know, if you if you put your money, <laughs> you know, into Grab Taxi, what have you learned? <laughs> All you've yeah. learned is that, like, you know, the Tan family put a billion dollars into Like, you haven't learned much, you know what I mean? Yeah, I understand. Yeah, so so from 2014, I was like, okay, I want to really solve, like, I went to a couple of conferences in the U.S., and I was talking to a lot of people about the pain, the, the struggle which I'm having, and they said, like, you got to start with a brand promise. What What are you? And is that brand promise sellable or not? So they always, like one one of the guy in, in Silicon Valley that I met, and I was like, okay, let me think about it. And yeah, then I was that, like, what, I that, wanna... what does that mean though, brand promise? So basically like when people think of Hungry Hub, what are you trying to promise to deliver? 
Like, what is your brand trying to deliver? Because convenience is not really a thing that people would pay for. Yeah, it's not, not good so enough. Much. Yeah, so it's not good enough. So you got to do something that people would agree and want to pay for. Like, people will believe and, and want to get jump on your brand promise. So, give, so give, give me an example of a company that exists today mm-hmm. that may not have existed five years ago that has a brand promise that I would understand immediately or that listeners would understand immediately. I mean, like you can say, you can say, for example, like Grab, for example, talks about like uh, safety and talks about like uh, like convenience and talks about uh, maybe I, I don't know what's the other thing, but I, I know that safety is one of their big brand promise in Thailand, especially because uh, people think about calling a taxi on the street for their kids or for their wife or for their doctor, especially for the girls. And feels unsafe about it. Yeah, and Grab has that thing that they can track their drivers and all that kind of thing, which is basically like a sign-up portal where it has more oversight and you can see where the drivers are moving. That is what I feel that they deliver, and one of the reasons people use it a lot. It's so weird. I never use Grab. I always use Uber, and I do, and I use it for exactly that reason. So when my daughter gets into an Uber. Yeah, I just say if, she, if she's out, I just say, "Look, can you just get into a, an Uber, please? I don't care what it costs." She's like, "I'll yeah. just take a taxi home." I'm like, "Don't, don't, don't take a taxi, please. Just take yep. an Uber because yeah. I can." It's not that I, I don't watch the progression of the taxi moving. I mean, of the Uber yeah. moving, but I know that I can at any point in time know yep. where it was and when it was there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So I mean, Grab Uber is the same for me. I'm just saying that as an yep, example, that, that's just yeah, that's just one. That's just one point which I think people would pay for that. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, so Safety. so for Hungry Hub, we kind of came back and I was like, okay, how can I... Basically, the struggle of restaurants in Thailand and in Asia and pretty much around the world is there's so many of them opening up now and the problem is they don't get customers and currently they're all getting customers at discount price because all the new platforms that are coming out is actually all focusing on discounts. Uh, to help bring in more customers to the restaurant. What's your view, What's your view on that? I have a view on that. Actually, that business. <laughs> okay, I'm not gonna pick on names, but uh, I mean, for me, is like if if the people who are sourcing you money die, you're gonna end up dying. Yeah, but how about this? How about if How about if you just if the whole business is now based on because I mean, that business is just a customer acquisition business, right? Yep. And if it costs you the same amount of money to do, I don't even remember the name of the business, right? But if it costs you the same amount of money to do that, but there's no customer loyalty on the back of it, yeah. it's just a discount, then you're not building anything except traffic into your business and you're losing money because the, the net economics don't, don't work, right? Right. So I don't understand why that business was ever a fundable or workable business. And frankly, it doesn't exist as a standalone entity anymore. Yeah. So I, I never understood it, but you know I don't know everything, right? I, so I'm just yeah. curious why that so, happened. But anyway, so you have your own opinions on how stuff so, goes, yeah? So for me, I feel like uh, discounts for restaurants, especially restaurants, people say that it's a high margin business. True, but people don't factor in their rent, their fixed costs, which don't come hand in the hand in the in the. Uh, variable food costs. So people say restaurants, food industry, probably cost of food is like 30 to 40%. Uh, you make 60% margin. True. No but at way. the end, end of the month, the yeah. restaurant net income is not more than 10%. At of the, the most. Yeah. Low so, double digits, yeah? 
Yeah, but when you do a 50% discount on on their meals, plus taking another 5-10% commission on that, you're cutting out 60% from their initial revenue, which means they're going to be going on negative. Correct. That's, so, why, that's why I thought the economics for that business didn't yeah. work, right? So, I mean, the thing is, in countries where restaurants are full all the time and you're using that to bring in off-peak hours discount, I think it probably makes sense. But in Thailand, the problem is every restaurant are using it for the peak hours as right, well right? because they just want to fight for the customer. And at the end, it becomes a, sustain- a, a non-sustainable game. Agreed completely. Yeah. So, so that's where I feel was a pain point, which makes it harder for us to try to introduce a new news. Right, because no one's gonna, no one's going to believe it, right? Because every other solution that comes in, they're like, "Oh my god, I just almost got killed last month because, you know, whatever it is." <laughs> so, so yeah, exactly, and that that's one. That's only on the restaurant side, but even on the user side, they're so spoiled because they're treated with all these different discounts offers that are unbelievable. And why would they? go with any other solution. But they don't realize that all the restaurants are leaving in every three months or four months from there. Yeah, because it works both ways, right? So if I'm sitting there, you know, and I'm using Eat2Go to go into a restaurant and get a 60% discount because it's off-peak, whatever off-peak means, right? Yeah. Because in Thailand as well, remember, unless my perception is wrong, but like people are eating 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's not clear to me when the off-peak is. I mean, I can joke about it a little bit, but sure. Yeah. You know, dinner time is maybe six to nine. Yeah. But people are still chowing at five and they're still eating at 11. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So if I'm just going to stand outside a restaurant until the peak is over and then get a 60% discount, it doesn't benefit me if I really like that restaurant because that guy is going to go away. And it doesn't benefit the restaurant either because the woman who's using it to go is never going to come back. Correct. Sorry. So that's just, you can see the way I feel about this. I think it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> when I'm yeah, not asking so, you to comment on that business, but I'm just saying, so what did you come up with? So you do all this research, right? You're trying to find yeah. the thing that people can believe in, you know, yeah. the brand promise. I'd like that concept, actually. Yeah. So you've come up with a brand promise, which is what? So basically for me, I want to sell the restaurant. I want to upsell for the restaurant. That was my brand promise that I want to set out. So I want to help increase the revenue per person for the restaurant while attracting more people into the restaurant. Okay. So I want to use our expertise, our technology, and our brand to attract people who will pay more money to the restaurant. And then I chose a niche, which is basically my personal uh, problem, which I had was when doing a food-related business, I used to take my team out for meals every now and then. Yep. Uh, the challenge which I had was controlling a budget because going to a normal a la carte restaurant uh, you can't really set a budget. Yeah, because you can't sit around the table and go, okay, everybody can only spend 670 baht, and then someone goes, can I get the 680 thing? Because that's where the lot, and you, you can't stop somebody from doing that. It's hard. Correct. So I was like, why can't we be the middle where it's slightly higher than the average customer spend and give them an exclusive offer, which is all you can eat, which does not exist for a normal walk-in customer. Hence, it becomes a unique value proposition for hungry hub uh, customers. I remember talking so, about this. Okay, how does but how does that really work in practice? So how it works is basically uh, for the restaurant we set up we work with the restaurant to come up with a menu that is uh, unique to hungry hub. So it's part of their original menu, but not entirely everything. We take a portion of their seats 
per round. So we don't take the whole restaurant because operationally, if we send the whole restaurant all you can eat customers, they'll die. Uh, they'll die. They can't serve because the kitchen, the staff doesn't. It's not built for that. No. But if we take only a, 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 an X portion of the restaurant to make it into all you can eat, that's still sustainable for the restaurant. So what we do is we use our expertise where we've been working with. Right now we have about a hundred restaurants already uh, doing all you can eat. So we tailor made and suggest the pricing, the menu for the restaurant based on the cuisine type, based on location, based on the average price point, and then we set the promotion on our app and our website, and the customers make a booking to get this deal. They pay at the restaurant, end of the month, we charge them. Okay. So can you give me, this is interesting, I really want to find out how this works. So can you yep. give me an example, rest, I mean, you must be able to, because I can just look on the app and see one, but sure. walk me through how this process works. So can you give me like your, not your favorite, right, but maybe your most popular restaurant or one that you think I would know, just so I can understand exactly how it's going to work. And I know all you can eat, I get that, but like... Before you worked with them, yeah. what did it look like? And then what did you yeah. go in and talk to them about? How did the pricing change? And how do you handle – there are a lot of questions here, right? But like how do you handle yeah. an outlier? Like let's say I'm just – I'm starving. I haven't had food in 15 days. I'm just coming off a hunger strike. Yeah. And I go to your restaurant and I can eat, just sit there and eat for three days. Like how do you prevent the yeah. outliers from you know, not being yeah. valuable customers? So can you okay. just walk me through that whole process? Sure, definitely. These are all common questions we yeah, get yeah. from the restaurant. That's why. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's say, for example, I'll put an international chain of restaurant, which probably is known well known by other countries as well, is Outback Steakhouse, Got which it. is an Australian, yep. uh, Australian franchise. We used to do Hard Rock as well, but not anymore. Uh, so Outback Steakhouse, let's say an average customer spends about five to 600 uh, or maybe 700 baht per person. Uh, Which includes eating, what? So that's like, like a steak and... So that's like an a la carte menu. Maybe order one of the baby back ribs or like some pork chop. Or uh, I'm taking out the outliers, like the beef, like the full steak, because sure, that's sure. probably... Because we don't include those in our menus. Right. And, and, so, and so technically not everyone's that, ordering it either. So Correct. So we, we when we go and calculate, we say what the restaurants don't want. We take out the outliers, the ones that will jump out the menu like lobsters and steaks <laughs> except some premium restaurants that want to include that we can we have ways to incorporate that that the restaurant can still control the budget so so let's give an example so we set the price for outback steakhouse at 990 baht all you can eat uh which means people will probably come in and spend maybe a thousand two thousand five maybe two thousand maybe three thousand for some people but in every if you actually look at a buffet business Restaurants lose money on some customers, but they make money on majority of the customers. Yeah, it's, 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 so a, it's, a, it's a statistical game. game, yeah? Yeah, it is a statistical But rest, some restaurants don't understand that because they've never lost money on any customer before. Right, right. So it's about explaining them that mindset and talking to them more about the bigger picture, the volume. And our main target is big groups. Uh, however, we still target Actually, we have three groups of customers. One is people who want to try a new restaurant but don't want to control their budget. Uh, basically, like you walk by a lot of restaurants, you look at the menu, pasta is two eighty, but which is like ten dollars, for example. You don't know how much, uh, how how big is the portion. So you're like, I don't want to try this restaurant because the bill might just come to like 
600 where my budget was supposed to be 400 right so but but if you see it on hungry hub like let's say 499 all you can eat you'll be like okay let me try this restaurant which i've been wanting to try for a while so that's one one group of customer second group of customer is the big groups who who basically want to take their team out birthday celebrations they want to control their costs when you go out with a group of friends 10 people you don't know who's going to order what and who's going to go crazy so you and most of the time in the asian culture you split the bill equally you don't go by like oh i ordered uh yeah exactly pop chop or i order uh, (laughs) uh, calamari and i'm just gonna pay for it it's it's not that i know i know people that do this but i only go out to dinner with them once because <laughs> I don't want to get nickel and dime to death. It's like you had three glasses of red wine that was a Bornello, and I only had two glasses of white wine that was an, you know, Orvieto. So like I'm only paying forty baht less. It's just not. Yeah. Right. So so <laughs> so that culture is not so strong in Asia. Yeah. So given that, I think uh, that's the second one, which is friends, corporates, and then the other one is just people who love to eat a lot, buffet eaters, and the, currently the only place they can go to is buffet lines mostly there's very few all you can eat places in in asia it's yeah. usually like pre-cooked food and you just go in and the quality is shit uh they they yeah, waste a lot right. of food every day it's it's cold and then you don't get to sit and talk because everyone's going to the buffet line every five minutes so that's basically my problem i hate buffet lines not good quality food but I still want to control my budget for taking my team out. And I want good ambience, good food, location. And that's why I started just for myself. Right. And so so now that you do that, right? Yeah. Do, so, and again, this is just me, but I've never trusted that sort of all-you-can-eat thing because I never trusted the quality. But what you're telling me is you're working directly with the restaurants to control the quality, control the price, control the budget. and. Yep. That, it's actually a good experience, not just for the restaurants, but also for the people that are using the service on the other side. Correct. Because we, we have a review system, and our average review across the board uh, is like 4.4 out of 5. And people do talk about quality as one main concern. Because the, as in, like, that's one thing people worry about. But when they go and read the review, the first thing people will write is the quality is exactly the same as normal walk-in. Uh, my normal experience at this restaurant the last time. So yeah. that that's where if they put lower the quality, customers will be able to figure that out and reply and write on that, and they they will not get any more bookings from us. Yeah, I mean, that's just the worst possible experience if you're at an all-you-can-eat place and you look at the table yeah. next to you and they've ordered a la carte and the food's just different. Yeah, exactly. Huh. So... Okay, so now I understand the difference. You said you have 100 restaurants on the platform. Is Did I get that number right? Correct, about 100 right now. And all in Bangkok, I'm presuming. We actually tr- trying out in Chiang Mai right now. We have five restaurants in Chiang Mai. Uh, just as a, as a test bed to see that we don't have the customer base there. Uh, will it work without us having a team uh, structure? Right. So more like a Sales. satellite yeah, kind of. Yeah. How's that going? So it's going pretty well. Like we just started with five restaurants. We we got booking within within two weeks of launching it. We got bookings for all five restaurants first month, uh, which shows that it. And one thing is also the price that I worry about it, but whether like suburban cities or like second tier, third tier cities will be able to pay 
or have the customer base as good as Bangkok, but it works if people are willing to pay at that price. But it's too early to tell. Uh, just good signs so far. So is this a mobile app in the sense that like, you know, I'm walking around, I make a last minute decision to go somewhere. Or is this something where I get together with my friends on a Thursday night and we make reservations for a Saturday night dinner? Like what is, how does that balance work? Uh, it's 50, 50, uh, average reservation in advance is about two days, okay. but we allow up to 30, 30 minutes in advance. Oh, wow. So, but, but, and how do you guys get paid? So we get paid, uh, at the end of the month where we invoice the restaurant based on the number of covers. But how do you know? So in other words, how do you know if somebody walks in and does the all you can eat thing without using the app or without booking with you, but they're still taking advantage of the menu and the service and all the stuff that you've sort of arranged for the restaurant. You know what I mean? Yeah, so we have a contract with the restaurant where where if we do find out when we do random checks as well, we call the restaurant so we walk in like to see whether they do allow people to to uh enter in without uh letting them book. We do get calls from restaurants all the time, pretty much almost all the restaurants once in a while at least, to say that hey this customer trying to book last minute they can't book, can you help? More in that. And we do have like a fine policy if they don't. And for customer side, they have we have a point system which they can redeem for cash back. So it's more like a loyalty program to let them use us. Uh, we have the thing is all the marketing is done online. There's no marketing done at the restaurant site. Uh, so there's no sign there that says like yeah no no nothing. So you wouldn't know. That's interesting yeah. though. So that means like if I just walk into. Outback, and I didn't know you were working with Outback. I wouldn't even know that there was an all-you-can-eat thing. I would just see some lady at the table next to me just like chowing five steaks and wonder why. Correct. <laughs> and that's actually one upside because it's more for the branding side for the restaurant not to be attached to something like an all-you-can-eat. Yeah. Some restaurants don't want that, but some restaurants are okay with that, and we do put uh, signs on the tables and stuff, but that that's up to the restaurant. So, and how long have you been in this new business model? So we've uh, decided to pivot, like to start. We started it around September, uh, but we kind of like stopped the reservation system in February and went all in with all you can eat only uh, from about February this of, year. Of this year, so you've been at it for seven <clears throat> months. Yeah, and. So the the problem with the previous business model was you said just nobody was booking. So every restaurant would obviously want a free service. And I presume at some level, if if this is free as well, right? So it just gets installed. You help work with them on the menu. Yep. And then if no one books in it, you don't get paid, right? Correct. So how has revenue – I mean obviously the previous business wasn't generating much revenue. But how how is yeah. this going? You know what I mean? Like how is it growing? Yeah. How is it going? Is this a business that you want to fund? Is it scalable? Like how does that work? So in 12 months, we've grown like from previous business to now like 10 times. Every month, we've been growing about 30 to 40%. Uh, and it pretty much every month has been growing. Uh, the number of restaurants, we've grown like uh, 10 to 15% every month, 20% some months. But the number of bookings has grown and revenue has grown a lot. So we are, to some restaurants, we are sending them like, we're increasing their revenue by about 30% to 40% where we take only like maybe 15 to 20% of their seating capacity. So we are 
becoming a major revenue contributor to restaurants where there are other players like Food Panda and other delivery and other uh, reservation systems out there. But from, I'd say within one year, we're becoming a big contributor to many restaurants. In yeah, I mean, look, the biggest problem for me, and again, I'm an outsider, right, with businesses like yeah. Food Panda is that they just take their, their margins are too high. Yeah. Right, so like you said earlier, yeah, you know, if if Food Panda is taking thirty or thirty five percent of the bill, yeah. then they're just taking all your profit. There's no reason to use them except for somebody's yeah. convenience. And like you said before, nobody cares. Yeah. So how hard is it now after you've been at this for seven months to walk into a restaurant that doesn't use your service and say, you know, because you do provide some consulting as well. It's not like you just walk in yeah. and say sign up for this thing. You rework the menu, you use their ingredients, Correct. all that kind of stuff. What other benefits do they get from? being on the platform like does it help them be more efficient in their ordering like how does that work so in terms of like the restaurant operations we don't touch so much on their existing operations we do more suggestions for hungry hub like all you can eat concepts like how to deal with different scenarios how to like uh, deal with like let's say a menu run out or uh, customer coming late or all that kind of thing. We we do suggest them best practice. Right. Uh, so, so in terms of in terms of you saying how difficult it is to get a restaurant, the first question you had, mm. uh, I would say in the first restaurant when I was trying to change from the reservation to all you can eat, I was like basically on phone. Call. I had two hundred restaurant partners at that time using reserva- our reservation system. Right. And I had close relationship with a lot of them. But still, I had to call about 50 restaurants to get the first one to agree. Hmm. And that, too, for, like, a small amount of fee and, like, a short period of time. And <clears throat> within a month, we grow well. Like we made their bookings go up, like, 50 times where we used to provide them, like, a few reservations per month. Yeah, like one guy so, would come in. Yeah. So we, <laughs> so we basically... In, Increase and they saw it and they loved it and then we were like okay in the next restaurant we use those numbers to share and it became easier as we get bigger bigger restaurants now we are talking to like bigger chains like fifty branches hundred branches so we're talking to uh, a lot of them are like piloting with us with like two five so the growth potential is huge like we are, we are not we are not tying up only with where we used to do reservation, it wouldn't work with like Pizza Hut or Swenson's right, or right. any of those restaurants. But with All You Can Eat, we can do every restaurant, like pretty much like all the minor group restaurants, uh, all the chains in all the malls, pretty much any restaurant that has a service. Uh, maybe I can't think of ways to do for McDonald's and KFCs yet. But No, not really. But like Din Tai Fung would work, right? Yeah, yeah, it would definitely work. Even like uh, Swenson's and all these kind of places, Pizza Hut, Pizza Company, Coffee Club, like you, you name it. Pretty much, I would say like we can cover about forty to fifty percent of restaurants in Bangkok. So, uh, so what's the what's the longer term goal then? So now that you've found a business model that works, you it seems to benefit everybody, right? Like if I go in, I can eat more food, or at least yeah. I know what I'm getting before I go in there. You know, I can try new places without the incumbent risks the restaurant no do you do do analytics for them as well you know like how much food people eat and then what the real margin is to them how different it would be if they just ordered a la carte as opposed to the all you can eat thing because that would be interesting to figure out right the thing is that's that's one thing where we want to get into but right now we don't have uh because they don't order on our platform 
uh, they order at at the restaurant using the POS. Uh, so we don't get that data, but we're trying to start by like talking to restaurants that we are close to and try to like capture that information and say that if you give us this data, we can help you yeah. to the next level. That's why I asked, so, right? Because so, that, that's so, incredible. Yeah, so that's where we are getting into. So we're talking to two or three restaurants right now about looking at the analytics, uh, basically looking at what customers actually order, what's the food cost, and what's the revenue they got. Because my my point is not only upsell, but to make it sustainable. Right. And I mean, some restaurants, they, they give us menus that are unreasonable. Like It's like they're definitely going to lose money, but they just want to do it for marketing purpose, and I can't stop them. Uh, but I don't want to get too many of those restaurants. No. I want to make sure it's more for the long term. Yeah, so you don't want to go to the oyster bar, right? In Naratiwa, and just go okay. All the lobster and all the oysters you can eat because you just go out of business. Correct. It's not good for anybody. But but you could yeah. go in there and have like, you know, I don't know, all the clam chowder you can eat because no one's gonna just take all. So there's a way to do it. But again, the analytics would be really interesting to look at. That's exactly what we are going to for the next one two months. That's one thing we're looking at. And another thing we are looking at is we're talking to a few partners about expanding this model overseas. Yeah. So, so we have. We have some interested people about looking very interested in this market, and they are in the food industry in that country as well. Right. So that was going to be the last question I was going to ask you, right? So, you know, and and I think you know my my thoughts on this, right? But building a business in Thailand is great. You know, building it in Bangkok is neat. Yeah. Uh, but building it in the region or even in the larger world is where you really start to get the economies of scale and get to really start to make some money, right? Correct. Um, and that's really when your dad calls you and goes, okay, I'm out of the hotel business. Now I'm coming to work for you because it's a global, he's, your dad's going to hate me, by the way. But um, but I'm comfortable. You know what I mean? <laughs> I feel safe. No, but you know what I mean? Like that's where the real bang for the buck is, right? That yeah. if you can get it to be a regional or even a, a super regional business, now you're talking about some serious business, yeah? Correct. So, yeah. So, we are talking to uh, people in Korea right now. We were thinking Singapore as a next option, but this was more like it was a right time, right opportunity kind of approach. So they are flying down to meet us in Bangkok. We've had multiple conversations already. So we're just working out on on the deal kind of structure. And how about a a country like Japan where there's a massive food culture um, and similar to Thailand, particularly in Bangkok, you know, just restaurants are opening all the time and... So I'll tell you why I think Japan doesn't work. And actually, I was just in Japan in April. Uh, Because Japan's food culture is eating individually, and the restaurants are usually small, uh, meaning like it's like a 15-seater, 12-seater restaurant, usually the places with good food. And those places are either like fine dining or like a ramen shop or like a sushi shop, which if you do all you can eat, the problem is there's hardly any service. They're trying to automate everything into like robots and <laughs> machines and all that. There's Maybe. no way you can control uh, the customer dining waste and all that kind of thing. So there's a lot of aspect and and having, let's say, like a ramen, all you can eat. You can't really do that. How many ramens can you eat? Usually like one or one. two. You, one. And it comes like big-ass portion, right? Yeah, I mean, I hate ramen to begin with, so that doesn't work for me at all. But, like, I'd love to do all the sushi you could eat. <laughs> yeah, I know, but, like, as in, like, that's also, like, usually, like, using trains now. Like, hardly, otherwise, it's, like, the super high-end omakase. Right. And so, uh, for me, I feel like Korea, Taiwan, 
Singapore, the more culture of like dining in bigger groups in would groups. work because they want a controlled budget. But Japan, from what I see, yeah, uh, maybe right. I might be wrong. Nope, I think it, you're it, right, actually. You're probably right. It's more in smaller groups. I think the bigger groups go more for drinking. And we actually started doing all you can drink in Thailand when we started all you can eat. But it's illegal. Actually, why? The, the, but they do free flow for two hours kind of thing, yeah? They individually, each restaurant can do. And no gov- like no one from the government would go and walk around the whole town trying to catch it. But like an app doing it, it's like so easy to just crack down, right? Cause, Wait, so systematically. So in other words, I didn't understand this. So before, if I go into a restaurant, you know, pick one, it doesn't matter. And they say like from seven to nine, free flow, Prosecco. Yep. 900 baht. That's illegal. So if they advertise, the advertising side is illegal. Having that promotion is not illegal as long as it's in the menu. Got it. So, okay, I didn't know that. So that means that if you put it on an app, which is essentially an advertising mechanism, yep. that that advertise. so the, the process isn't illegal, but the ad is illegal. Correct. So our concept is we are an online platform. We are advertising for the restaurant. So it doesn't really work for us. Got it. Okay. Uh, yeah. So and we do like social media ads and all to drive people there. And then one of our ads got like a thousand shares within a day. And <laughs> next thing you know, the restaurant got a warning letter. Right. <laughs> and, and the restaurant called me on my holiday and be like, hey, man, I need to take this down. <laughs> the government is <laughs> closing my restaurant. <laughs> right, so this is where your dad's really unproud. <laughs> So yeah, so but in other countries like uh, this could be one of the business ideas as long as we cover very well on the liability aspect and yeah, sure. the branding aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, alcohol is always tricky, right? Because, well, let's just say the the interested parties in the alcohol business in every country are the same. Yeah, and you're just dealing with different entities. So let's let's not talk about that so much. Yeah. <laughs> Look, this has been really, really interesting, and I learned something. I learned a lot, actually, today. Yeah. So hopefully this was as interesting for you as it was for me. And I, I, I'd like to follow up, right, because I want to find out, you know, now that you're sort of established and you feel like you found a business model that works in Thailand, that's great. There's a lot of growth, right, because there's Phuket and Konkan and Nakhon Samwon and all these places, you know. <laughs> but you, you could do it, right? There are plenty of places you could do it. Yeah. Um, and I think it works – you know, there are noodle shops where you could do this because, like you said, you can't eat so much, but then new people can come in and try them, right? Correct. Um, and there are multiple mechanisms. And I don't think there's only one platform that wins in this case. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, exactly. so I think that there's plenty of room for growth for that business. Um, but, yeah, I'd like to follow up. Definitely. Um, but why don't we stop here? Look, I really want to say thank you for spending so much time this late, yeah. like on a, what is it, Wednesday? I never remember what day it is anymore, but on a Wednesday evening. So I really appreciate your time. Um, I want to thank you again, um, Sirsit Satchdev, the CEO and the founder of Hungry Hub. Um, and, you know, so far, congratulations. A lot more work to do, obviously, but uh, good stuff. And thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. And thanks for organizing this great podcast. Oh, you're welcome. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.